0: You are now listening to the January 27th broadcast of Unity in Christ. Today's broadcast includes Christian Ease 101, Grace Upon Grace, and the Sex Spiral. We will begin with a praise song and follow with our program, Christian Ease 101.
1: Hello, everyone. Welcome to another lesson in the series Christianese 101. I am your host, Don Chang. Today, we'll be talking about the word Emmanuel. Have you heard the word Emmanuel during a Christmas service and wondered what it meant? The word Emmanuel speaks of Jesus Christ. I'll read you a verse from the Bible that explains the meaning of Emmanuel very well. In Matthew chapter 1, verse 23, it says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. As it says in the verse, Emmanuel means God with us. Then how is God with us? Jesus, who is one with God, came down to earth in a physical body to be with us. He showed how God was with us literally. Immanuel is a compound word from two Hebrew words. Imman means with us and El means God. In the beginning, God created the Garden of Eden and placed Adam and Eve there that we may be with God and God with us. However, due to Adam's sin and the nature of sin leading to death, And with sin and death in us, we were not able to be with God. Because of our sin, if we drew closer to God, we had to die. But in spite of all of this, God bestowed grace upon us. He chose Israel to be his nation and allowed them to build a tabernacle. And God has dwelled with them in the tabernacle. But hold on, some people might wonder, what is a tabernacle? A tabernacle means tent, where the Israelites give their sacrifices, between the period of them wandering in the wilderness to Solomon's building of the first temple. This tabernacle also represents God residing with his people. God, who has resided in the inner sanctuary or the Holy of Holies, came down in a physical body as the Messiah. That is Jesus Christ. When we couldn't be with God because of our sin, we were able to be with God through Jesus Christ. And the veil between the inner sanctuary and the rest of the tabernacle was torn in two when He died on the cross. But Jesus couldn't stay here with us forever. He had to go back to God the Father to prepare a place for us to be together. That is why Jesus went back to God then sent us the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit dwells, or tabernacles in individuals who declare Jesus Christ as their Savior and becomes Emmanuel, God with us. In the verse in the book of Matthew I read earlier, Matthew is quoting a prophecy in the Old Testament. In Isaiah chapter seven fourteen, the prophet says, Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. This is where Emmanuel is first prophesied. Back then, Israelites were experiencing hardships and torment by other countries. That is when God promised Emmanuel. The promise back then signified the freedom from suffering but also symbolized the gift of eternal salvation that were given to God's people 700 years later through Jesus Christ. How about it? Are you experiencing hardships, disappointment, and despair? Remember, Emmanuel is with us right now. He will save us from whatever we're going through and save us during the day of judgment so that we may be with Him forever. Think of God as Emmanuel and let us hope that we become individuals who seek a close relationship with God. May you have a blessed week and I look forward to speaking with you again next week. Goodbye!
2: sign shall be given a virgin will conceive a human baby bearing undiminished deity the glory of the nations a light for all to see and hope for all who We'll embrace His warm reality. Oh
0: Coming up next is a podcast series, The Sex Spiral, led by Pastor Dustin Daniels of Purity Ministry from Phoenix, Arizona. The program addresses sex with biblical grace and truth, without the shock value, and is a resource for anyone looking for biblical answers to pornography, singleness, marriage, family, and children. This program may contain mature language and subject matter.
1: Welcome to God, Sex, and You, a daily discipleship podcast on healthy sexuality. Here's your host, Purity Pastor Dustin Daniels.
3: Today is going to be a fun day. We learned the first trigger in the series called The Sex Spiral, Forgiven and Free from Pornography. This material is a preview from my my new book, which will be released this summer from Ambassador International Publishers, along, obviously, with God's grace. Well, the sex spiral is the 12 triggers of pornography addiction, and we learned yesterday that these are not steps. These are triggers, and, and once we're triggered by our awareness, which is trigger number one, it's it's being vulnerable to sin. We actually have choices. We don't have to keep doing what we've always done. We always have choices and we don't have to stay where we are. We can pray, we can flee, and we can confess to exit the sex spiral. Or we can do all three of those things one after the other. This is part two of the awareness trigger, trigger number one. And today I'm going to share two stories From my own life, practically, how does this stuff get done in real life? I'm going to share two stories uh, with you on how to do that. And you're also going to learn three things. Number one, how looking at someone or something often moves to seducing that someone or something. Number two, sexual sin escalates when it's not confronted and when it's not confessed. And number three, flirting can turn to violence because misplaced passion often does. So here's the lesson. Trigger number one, this is called awareness for part two. So, key point number five scientifically, your brain is flooded with what's called dopamine D O P A M I N E, dopamine. So, there is a very real physiological change that happens in our brain chemistry when we start being triggered. Does God give us an example of how to flee in his word? Genesis 39, let's take a look at Joseph and the Potiphar's wife. Genesis chapter 39, verse 6. Joseph was a very handsome and well-built young man, and Potiphar's wife soon began to look at him lustfully. Come and sleep with me, she demanded. She demanded, gentlemen. But Joseph refused, and he said, look, My master trusts me with everything in his entire household. No one here has more authority than I do. He has held nothing back from me except you, because you are his wife. How could I do such a wicked thing? It would be a great sin against God. She kept putting pressure on Joseph day after day, but he refused to sleep with her, and he kept out of the way as much as possible. One day, however, no one was around when when he went to do his work. She came and she grabbed him, demanding, Come on, sleep with me. And Joseph tore himself away and he left his cloak in her hand as he ran from the house. Now I'm waging my bets. Most men would not turn down the opportunity to sleep with a beautiful, powerful woman. However, Joseph did, he ran. It certainly is possible. God shows us this, right? So key point number six is Joseph ran. He didn't think. Joseph ran. He didn't think. Third and fourth blanks. He didn't ask questions or quote Scripture. He ran. Why did he not ask questions or quote Scripture? Because he knew that if he were to try to think, okay, what's that verse? 1 John 1, I'm supposed to cut away. Uh, no, it's just easier to run. That's the whole point. Right? Flee. Now, Joseph made a huge mistake to get to this point. Right? Joseph, he didn't talk to his boss. He should have talked to Potiphar. You know, it's, he didn't tell him his wife was flirting with him. Now, I know that's an awkward conversation, especially when this guy's a slave. Right? He's in a no-win situation. Uh, Potiphar, can I talk to you? I know I'm a slave. But your smoking hot wife, is, uh, she's flirting with me. and She's demanding that you sleep. Uh, he would have been killed or put in prison. The, the, the guy's a slave. Key point number seven, A. See, what happens is her looking at Joseph moved to seducing Joseph. Her looking at Joseph moved to seducing Joseph. 7B, sexual sin always escalates when it's not confronted. Always. 7C, flirting turned to violence because misplaced passion always does, often does. So you see, as you go back, and you guys will read this story you'll see that this woman most likely had a history, and you'll see the escalation of her sin towards him. It's fascinating. So how does, how does fleeing work in the real world? Some of you may go, ah, oh, well, that, that's Joseph, he's a saint. How does this really work? Five years into my purity journey, Amy and I were um, visiting some friends, and we were watching TV one night. We were staying the weekend at their house, and um, the guy was flipping through the channels, and we were all on the couch hanging out, and all of a sudden, he comes across HBO or Cinemax, and there are two beautiful people having sex. Is he a believer? Uh, no. They're not believers. And I'm going, one second, two second, three seconds, and I'm going, um, shouldn't, I'm thinking to myself, shouldn't he be changing the channel right now? And all of a sudden, his 16-year-old daughter goes, oh, my. And I went, another second? And, another? and all of a sudden, he starts laughing, his wife starts laughing. And what seemed like an eternity was like six or seven seconds. And all of a sudden, I literally jump out of the couch and go straight to the spare bedroom. And Amy walks in a few minutes later, and she's kind of got this smirk on her face. And, and I'm thinking to myself, how do you think the breakfast conversation is going to go tomorrow? But see, it it wasn't like it it was over the the five years into my journey. It's that it wasn't like I didn't want to stay because the old Dustin wanted to stay. I wanted to watch that, but I don't know what happened, guys. You spend five years in God's word doing the very things that that I'm showing you here with the purity plan. And all of a sudden it was a physiological response. Boom. And you know what? Breakfast conversation wasn't that bad. Nothing was ever said. Most importantly, I honored God and I honored Amy. Ten years into my journey, some of you older guys may remember this. So I walk into this restaurant and all of a sudden I've got three or four very young ladies with no clothes on looking at me. They had barely anything on. I'm meeting a friend and everywhere I looked was another naked waitress. Almost naked. It doesn't matter. And I'm going, um... So I'm thinking in the back of my mind, like I'm going to kill this guy, and this guy's a pastor. So I look back at the hostess, and now, whatever my face is, they're mad at me because of the way my so they've got scowls because I'm judging them, you know that kind of thing. And all of a sudden, I turn around and I just walk out. And I call my my buddy, and I go, Are, Is this some kind of sick joke? What is wrong with you? He's like, What? I said, I, I was just at the restaurant. He goes, well, good. I'm here having an appetizer. Where, where are you? I said, you're at the restaurant with the virtually the naked women? Silence. What restaurant are you at? <laughs> I looked at the sign, and I told him. Silence on the phone. And all of a sudden, he goes, you went in there? <laughs> <laughs> yes, I went in there. That's where I thought. He goes, no, 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 no. <laughs> it's in the same plaza and it's very close to the same name, but I'm just around the corner. There was one word that changed the name of the two different restaurants it's in the same plaza. And I said, I am going to choke you when I get over there. So I call Amy and I said, Amy, um, just a little FYI. And I'll never forget the, and I didn't plan to use these words. They just came out of my mouth. I've seen more skin today than in a decade or so. And she literally goes, and I've never heard her to this day, I've never heard her more serious. She goes, are you okay? She doesn't know the old Dustin, right? She, she married after I went all through my stuff and met Jesus. So she, does, she gets to see glimpses of him, who's a real jerk off by the way. But she doesn't get to know that guy. But I heard the tone of her voice like, oh crap, this is serious. But that's how you flee. You don't think. You just and you leave. Or you call. Confession is the other way to exit the trigger. First John 1 9, if you don't have that highlighted in your Bible, make sure you do. First John 1 9. If we confess our sins to Him, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all wickedness. So confession changes everything. And that's one of the the main keys to these small groups is that to confess your sin on a weekly basis is, it's like putting you on the HOV lane to purity, man. You're releasing yourself from wickedness look at the verse if we confess our sins he's faithful to forgive our sins so this is a vertical forgiveness every time you ask for forgiveness god is going to forgive you he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all wickedness another confession verse is james 5 16 make sure that is highlighted in your bible so if that's the vertical, if First 1 John 1, 1.9 is the vertical confession to God, James 5.16 is this horizontal confession to other people. And James 5.16 is the verse that will change your life in this room and during this study and for the rest of your life. James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. So the first thing to do is to confess your sins to one another. Well, why do we want to do that? So you can have your brothers pray for you around these tables. Not that I can make you do anything or your table leader can do anything. If you would take the opportunity when we break into the small groups and confess your sins, then your your brothers will pray for you. Why is that important? Because we have to keep reading the verse, right? This is where healing begins. Confess your sins to one another so that other men can pray for you. Why? So that you can be healed. This is where healing begins. Key point number seven, confession is where healing begins. Confession is where your healing begins. So what happens if you choose not to flee or confess to a trusted friend? The next thing that happens is you're going to move down this spiral and you're going to start thinking unhealthy self-thoughts. You're going to have an unhealthy thought life. You may not even recognize that you do it, but there's a uh, thing of it as an audio CD that begins to play in your head, and we'll get to that next week, of why it is that you talk yourself into not calling someone. Why why do I want to try to control this and, and do it myself instead of reaching out? Having the unhealthy thought life is a part of that. Key point number eight, the downward progression is inevitable. Sexual sin is not a cycle. You go around and around and start at the same place each time. That's not the case. Your life gets progressively worse. Every time you go around it, it becomes more depraved. The sin becomes more serious and it becomes more more evil, so to speak. You become morally corrupt Your character becomes morally corrupt the longer that you're in this. And it's such a slow slide, man. You don't even know what's happening. And all of a sudden, two decades later, you wake up and go, how did I wake up here? Holy crap. So you're saying, so once the, if you don't confess, let's say, it'll attack other areas of your life as well? It affects everything. Everything. Absolutely. So on the worksheet... You want to review key point number four and look at all those questions and think about the next, the last time that you sinned and talk about these things. Everybody talk for a few minutes. We're running just a little bit late here. But answer these questions in your group. Do you have a better understanding of, of how to flee when you're aware of your lust? And what sins do you need to confess tonight? Do not be afraid to confess your sin. That is a perfect way to end today's lesson. Don't be afraid to confess your sin, and I want to encourage you to do that right now. To confess your you're looking at porn or flirting emotionally with a coworker or a friend. Uh, to confess these things to God. To confess the heaviness and the the guilt and give this over to Him, to, to give it over to Jesus, over to God. First John 1.9 says that when we confess our sins to God, He will forgive us. And, and it's not based on a condition. We don't have to do anything. He wants to forgive us. He's the one that's faithful, right? We're not. I'm not, for sure. And He longs to forgive us for, for looking at pornography. And He's not going to judge us. Your pornography has already been judged by Christ who bore your cross. At the end of the day, you are forgiven and you're free from pornography. Uh, You just don't know it yet. And from a spiritual perspective, it's by the blood of Jesus Christ. And it's the power of the Holy Spirit who lives inside of you. From a practical perspective, it's by applying all these principles to your life. That you will find freedom from pornography and you're going to find freedom in Christ. And look, we don't do this perfectly, but we can do it increasingly. We, we can. How do I know? Because, well, I'm just a little further down the road than you are. I mean, that's it. I, and I just, want to, I just want to show you the way. I just want to point you to Jesus. But, you know, it's, it's by God's grace that I've been free from the bondage of pornography for 13 years. Well, how's that possible? well because i'm i'm following jesus and and ultimately this journey towards freedom in christ is about trust it really is we can trust and do it his way <laughs> or we can keep doing it our way right according to the journal of adolescent health prolonged exposure to pornography it it diminishes trust in your marriage and my experience is that it it diminishes trust in every relationship, just not in your marriage, but every single one, especially in God. And this is just another reason I believe it's so important to protect all of your devices, your laptops, your tablets, your phones, with Covenant Eyes internet filtering software. I've been using it for years, and man, I tell you, I just I, I see how it does reestablish trust in the marriage. It reestablishes trust with your spouse, with your children. And um, it also establishes trust in God, knowing that this is a tool that you're going to use in your toolkit to uh, walk alongside freedom. Well, thank you so much. for. I'm your host, Dustin Daniels. And if you're in Phoenix, let me invite you to our weekly community group. It's for men, it's for women, husbands, wives, singles, divorced. Everybody is welcome. And you're invited to listen to God with us every Tuesday night at 7 p.m. We're at Northern Hills Community Church in North Phoenix. If you're a Twitter person, you can follow me on Twitter at Purity Pastor. And if you have a question for me, go to dustindanielsradio.com and email me your question. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 4.20, the kingdom of God isn't just a lot of talk it's living in God's power. That's the power that lives inside of you. The Holy Spirit living inside of you. It's the very name and the shed blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior God. I love you and look forward to our time again. Have a great weekend. 71% of teens have admitted to hiding what they do online from their parents. This is just one of the many, many reasons I believe it's so important to protect all of our devices with Covenant Eyes. I've been using it for years, and if you do not have protection on all of your uh, computers and cell phones and tablets, let me encourage you. Visit CovenantEyes.com today. Receive a 30-day free trial when you use my name. Dustin Daniels with no spaces in that promo box.
0: Coming up next is a sermon by Pastor Timothy Keller of Redeemer Presbyterian Church. Today's topic is Spiritual Warfare, based on Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 13. i hope you have a blessed time with pastor timothy
4: we're in ephesians now in africa latin america asia most places in the world the idea of spiritual warfare of a conflict between spiritual good and spiritual evil is not uh, an unusual concept Many people in many parts of the world think it really helps them make sense of reality. But we here in the Western world find it a foreign concept. So let's look at this passage. This is the first part. Next week we'll look at another section on this. And let us notice what? We struggle, you know, spiritual warfare. But let's notice who we fight, what we fight, and how we fight. Who we fight? Our struggle is not with flesh and but with spiritual forces of evil. What we fight, the devil's schemes. How we fight, do everything. All right, first, um, who do we fight? Yeah, you see here in verse 12, our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, authorities, powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil. Now, when Paul says this, and he says we wrestle not against flesh and blood, he doesn't mean that uh, we don't wrestle with any flesh and blood version of evil. He's not saying that, that evil doesn't take flesh and blood form. He, he has struggled with people who imprisoned him and who flogged him and who uh, you know, stoned him. So he certainly uh, opposed flesh and blood evil. But what he is saying is we wrestle not only with flesh and blood evil, that when evil takes flesh and blood form, uh, war and cruelty and violence and greed, and strife, and racism, and crime, and poverty. When it takes those uh, flesh and blood forms, he is saying they participate in something that's above and behind and beyond that is more than merely human and natural. That the flesh and blood behind it is something that's not flesh and blood. And until you recognize that dimension of evil in the world, you will not be able to understand its depth, and its pervasiveness, and its intractability. So, that's what he's saying. Now, here in the West, modern Western world, we have trouble with that. Because the modern Western mindset is this, that everything has a natural cause, and therefore everything has a scientific explanation. If everything has a natural cause and a scientific explanation, then crime and violence and greed and racism and war and cruelty, all those things must have a natural cause. And what is that natural is then? We say it's bad psychological factors, you were not raised right, you weren't educated right, or bad sociological factors, bad social systems. And we say, there's got to be a natural cause to all this, and we can figure it out, and we can fix it. That's the Western mindset. But it's wearing thin. Andrew Delbanco, who's one of the great uh, uh, intellectual scholar type who's at Columbia University some years ago, wrote a book called The Death of Satan. And even though he says... In the book, I'm a secular liberal. He wrote a book called The Death of Satan and the first line in the book is this. He says, a gulf has opened in our culture between the visibility of evil and the intellectual resources to cope with it. And then he goes on and says this, that we've jettisoned in the West the idea of cosmic evil or transcendent evil or supernatural evil. We don't believe in that. In fact, we don't even like to use the word evil. And the reason we don't like it is because it implies value judgments and moral absolutes. So we use medical terms. We talk about dysfunction. We talk about pathology. And we don't use moral terminology. But, Delbanco says, as the 20th century has gone on, it's gotten harder and harder to say that holocaust and ethnic cleansing and serial killing is just bad psychological and sociological adjustment. Del turns, in his book, he turns to a very famous interaction. It's in the book, Silence of the Lambs. And, of course, it was also depicted in the movie, The Silence of the Lambs. It's a place where the young policewoman, Officer Starling, goes to meet for the first time the monstrous serial killer Hannibal Lecter. And she goes to the cell. And she's looking at him and hearing what he's done and says, what happened to him to make him so twisted, what happened to him that he could be so cruel? And she, he heard her, big mistake, Starling. And he begins to speak, and this is what he says, and it's very hard to read this without hearing Anthony Hopkins. I know, but you know, she says, what happened to him to make him so twisted? And Lecter responds, quote, "Nothing happened to me, Officer Starling. I happened. You can't reduce me to a set of influences." You've given up good and evil for behaviorism, Officer Starling. You've got everyone in moral dignity pants. Nothing is ever anybody's fault. Look at me. Can you stand to say, I'm evil? And Delbanco, who's quoting this, says, modern people, the modern West, cannot answer the monster's question. And he's right. He says, as the 20th century has gone on, But we said 150 years ago that all evil has got natural causes, scientific causes, psychological, social causes. He says it's wearing thin. You know, one of the things we used to say is that uh, racism and violence comes from a lack of education, a lack of civilization, a lack of culture. It's only primitive, uncivilized, uneducated people are like that. And then we had World War II. And then we had the final solution and the Holocaust and the death camps that arose out of perhaps as as educated and as cultured a nation as there was on the face of the earth. And we had Marxism. And Marxism says, ah, the reason for all the problem, it's not psychological or educational, it's social. We have to put the means of production in the hands of the proletariat, not in the hands of the capitalists, but we did, they did, and of course the proletariat was every bit as oppressive and violent as the capitalists were. And now Marxism has been thrown onto the dustbin of history, basically. And over and over again, everything that says, oh, it's psychological, it's social. Del Banco says we cannot, today in the West, account for the depth pervasiveness of evil. But the Bible doesn't have that problem. The Bible says here's where evil came from. It came from the free will of two races of beings that God created, angels and humans. And some of the angels fell by exercising their free will and turning away from God. And the fallen angels, the devil and his demons, are personal supernatural beings. And then on the other hand, we have the human race. And we turned, and now sin and evil is in our heart. It's deep in our soul, which is spiritual roots. And therefore, here's what Christianity says. Yes, psychological and sociological factors can aggravate they can accentuate and they can shape the innate self-centeredness, the innate self-absorption, the innate blindness and self-delusion, the innate radical insecurity in the human heart. But those factors don't create it. And that, that stuff that's in the heart, aggravated by the devil, is what makes the world the way it is. So that's enough on that list. Point one, we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, So let me just uh, push this home to you. There is a devil, there are demons. You need to see that. I know there's gotta be people listening to me or who will listen to this recording that have a lot of trouble with the idea that there's a personal devil or believing in a personal devil, believing here what the Bible says. But let me actually, let me suggest four things to you real quick. Number one, if you struggle believing in the devil, would you please at least consider that you're being simplistic? New Yorkers, want to be sophisticated. New Yorkers want to be nuanced and sophisticated, not crude and unsophisticated. But is it possible that perhaps, by not realizing the multidimensionality and the spiritual depth dimension to human evil, you are being simplistic and you are being naive? And not the people who believe in the demons, that they're not being the unsophisticated, crude ones, but you are? Here's a second point. If you guys struggle with believing in the personal devil, consider that you might be culturally narrow, because you know white Western people have a lot of trouble believing the devil. That's not true of most people in the world. Africa, Latin America, Asia—they have no trouble with believing in spirits and demons and things like that, and and they've got wisdom too, don't they? I mean, are you really going to just look down at all that wisdom? Why not be open culturally to what other cultures tell you about this? To paraphrase Shakespeare. There are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in your psychologies and sociologies. Here's a third idea that you ought to think of. If you struggle with the idea that there's a real devil, personal devil, do you believe in God? You say, oh yeah, I believe in God. Well, if you believe in God, is not it a little inconsistent if you believe in good personal supernatural beings, why there couldn't be bad personal supernatural beings? I mean, where's the not inc- that a little inconsistent? But here's the main thing I want to say. If the Bible's true, if the Bible's right about this, and it is, then you will not be able to understand, let alone defeat, on your own, the darkness, in your own heart, in your family, in the city, in the world. You won't be able to do that. The dark is, it's beyond you. We're in over our heads unless God is helping us. It's not going to just take psychology and sociology. Okay. Okay. That's who we fight. Secondly, what is it we fight? And what we fight, it's, it's actually listed there. The devil's schemes. And all right, let's, let's spend some time on this. The word scheme, sometimes it's called wiles. It's a word that means, it's, the Greek word is "methodia," method. But it's a word that means strategies. The devil, therefore, must have an arsenal, of weapons, or the devil must have a, a portfolio of various strategies he throws at us. Very interesting. There's a place in 2 Corinthians 2, verse 11, that says, uh, Do not be unaware of the devil's devices. We should do not be ignorant of his devices, the old King James says. So, what is that? Obviously, the devil's got devices, we have to fight them. What is that? There's two errors we must fight, and two sets of strategies we must fight. Two errors that he got, the devil wants us to fall into and two sets of strategies that he throws. Okay, first the two errors. Now, the two errors are actually inferred. You can infer them from the balance of what Paul is saying to us about the demons and the devil. On the one hand, he doesn't want us to overestimate. On the other hand, he doesn't want us to underestimate their power. So for example, he doesn't want us to underestimate the power. You know, it says our struggle is not with flesh and blood. The word struggle there is not the normal word for struggle. It's a word that actually means wrestling with your bare hands on the ground. You know, if you're shooting arrows at somebody, that's a battle. And if you're fighting them with a sword, that's a battle. But when you get to the place where you're on the ground wrestling with your enemy with your bare hands, that's the most desperate life and death close moment. And that's the word Paul deliberately chooses to talk about, the spiritual warfare and then look at the words he uses. Why doesn't he just say demons? Instead he says the rulers, the authorities, powers of this dark world, spiritual forces of evil. He's trying to show us how formidable they are. He's just racking up these impressive words. He's trying to show us do not underestimate them. But on the other hand, he actually says don't overestimate them. Be strong in the Lord, meaning, you know, don't be afraid, you know? Don't run. Don't be cowardly. And then he says at the end, he says, for when the evil day comes and you've put on the full armor of God and you've done everything I'm telling you to do, you will stand. He doesn't say you might stand. He says you will stand. Expect success. Now, some of you have heard this. C.S. Lewis, in the introduction to his book Screwtape Letters, says there are two equal and opposite errors you can fall into with regard to demons and demonic and what are those two opposite errors, the ones that paul 's trying to help us avoid? on the one hand, you can overestimate their strength. you can have what c s Lewis calls an unhealthy interest in them, or ascribe all evil to them or ascribe too much power to them, on the other hand, to disbelieve in them, to not believe in them at all. One you could call superstition, one you could call superstition, one is overbelief, one is underbelief, and Lewis ends his little quote by saying. They themselves, the devils, are equally pleased with both errors and hail a materialist or magician with the same delight. Now, why are both these errors bad? I'll tell you why. Because they reduce evil. And the key to fighting successfully all the things that are against us, all the spiritual forces, is to actually have a nuanced and complexified understanding of evil. And if you say, oh, everything's the devil, or there's nothing the devil, you're actually, you've reduced things. And you really are, uh, you've got a simplistic understanding of what goes wrong. I often refer to this, well, I don't know how often. If you've been around, you've heard me refer to it before. But some years ago, I read a sermon by Richard Baxter, who was a 17th century British Puritan minister. You know, 1600s. And he wrote a book on melancholy, which, of course, is our word, is an old word for depression, and he was a very good pastor, and he knew how to work with people. And so the sermon says, well, what are the possible causes of depression, melancholy? And he named four. The first one, he says, well, it could be your depression is caused by the physical. It might have a physical cause, in which case what you need is medicine or food or rest to be something with your body. Secondly, he says, there might be a psychological cause You might be cast down in your temperament, and what you need then is lots of love and affirmation and just support. But number three, he says, there might be a moral cause. Uh, You might feel guilty about something, or you might be angry at something, and maybe feel guilty about being that angry, and you need repentance, and you need forgiveness, and you need reconciliation. So it could be a physical cause. There could be a psychological cause. There could be a moral cause. Or he says there could be a demonic cause, which we're getting to here. Now, or it could be more than one, and they could be kind of interactive. Now, I challenge you to find anywhere, hardly, that level of nuance and balance. Because you see, almost everybody falls into one of the two errors that Lewis talks about. One of the two errors that, that Paul's trying to avoid. On the one hand, let's face it, you have a lot of Christians today who actually attribute so much to the devil. If you've got a problem, if you've got a temper problem, if you've got an anger problem, for example, it's the devil. We gotta do something about it. Well, wait a minute, what about the way you were raised? What about the bad psychology in you because of a, a, a bad family background? What about your physiology? What about is there something wrong with your chemical? No, no, it's all the devil. So what you're doing, is, or, or maybe you're angry because you're refusing to forgive somebody and that's a moral issue and not a demonic issue. See, on the one hand, you've got believers, you've got Christians that are attributing too much. They're like, actually, weirdly enough, they'd be upset to hear that, but they're like magicians, according to to Lewis. In other words, everything is magical, everything is occult, everything is demonic. On the other hand, you've got what we have mainly in New York, and that is we don't believe in it at all. We give up on the whole thing. The whole idea is kind of silly. Both errors equally please the devils. They hail both with equal delight. Why? Because you're really not able to see all that they're throwing at you. All that life is throwing at you. Most people are, you can see. Most people, if you're discouraged, depressed, there's a super spiritual approach. It's all the devil. There's an under spiritual approach. It's, you know, you just give a person medicine. It's, a, you know, it's a psychological and the physical. It's never the moral or the demonic. Oh my goodness. But like, Richard Baxter was biblical. Paul is being biblical. Are you being conformed to one of these errors? Stay out of them. It's part of the method. It's part of his devices. Stay out of those two errors. But now secondly, understand the two categories of lies. The devil, do you know the word devil here? Put on the full armor of God so you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. There's two words usually used to to talk about the devil. This is probably the most common one. It's the Greek word diabolos, and you say, oh yeah, I know that word diabolical. But maybe you don't, because the word diabolos is a verb, and this is a noun form of a verb, and the verb means to lie and slander. Now, you need to understand this. You need to get away from the error. We're too skeptical. That is, here in the West, we don't think the devil's ever involved, unless the person's head is completely turning around, they're turning green, and they're vomiting. <laughs> then, we, well, maybe that is the devil. You know, perhaps. Because the devil got in there somehow. The main way the devil works is he's a liar. The word devil means a liar. It also means a slanderer. John White wrote a book years ago, Christian counselor, and said, here's how the devil works. Take a a piano and open up the top and sing a note into it. And whatever string that your voice is attuned to, you know, most of us don't have perfect pitch, so we have no idea what note we're actually saying But you can find out. Open up the top of the piano, sing a note in, and a particular note, a string will vibrate. It's the string that's attuned to your voice. You haven't even touched it. You haven't touched the key, you haven't touched it, and yet it's vibrating to your voice. That's what the devil does. The devil cannot make a good person bad. The devil makes a flawed person worse. The devil plays on what's already in you. He aggravates what's already in you through lies. And that's the reason why, for example, it says in Ephesians 4, we actually saw it some weeks ago, don't let the sun go down on your anger. Don't give the devil that kind of foothold. If you're bitter, that gives him the ability to aggravate and press you and push you. You've given him a foothold. It says in First Timothy, don't put a young man into the eldership because he might get puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Pride helps you fall into the snare of the devil. Eldership because he might get puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Pride helps you fall into the snare of the devil. Now, there's two ways in which Satan's lies, he says things to you. It doesn't necessarily mean he literally says things to you, that you actually hear a voice, who's that? But rather, what he does, he stimulates talk that goes on in your heart. Because he might get puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Pride helps you fall into the snare of the devil. And there's two basic categories of those according to the Bible, temptation and accusation. Now listen, by the way, from here out to the end, you might get inspired, but I'm actually here to instruct and convict. So I want you to listen. I'm, trying to be very, I'm going to be as specific as I can in the next five minutes. Eldership, because he might get puffed up with pride and fall into the snare of the devil. Pride helps you fall into the snare of the devil. Temptation and accusation. Temptation essentially gets you to have too high a view of yourself. So you go and do things you shouldn't. Accusation is the devil's way of trying to get you to have too low and self-hating a view of yourself so that you'll go and do things you won't. you shouldn't. There are both ways of work, they both work. In temptation, Satan is actually hiding from you God's holiness and how much he hates sin. He hides that from you, he plays up the love. But in accusation, he hides from you God's love. He plays up the God's holiness and his wrath on sin and he hides God's love. That's the reason why uh, John Newton, who was a very good pastor, was writing a, to a depressed young man who was a Christian and who was very depressed, and he was under accusation because he was saying, oh, I'm so awful, God can't love me. And John knew he was under accusation. So he wrote this. He says, you cannot be too aware of all your inward and inbred sins, but you may be, indeed you are, improperly affected by them. And here's his main point. You express not only a low opinion of yourself, which is certainly right, but you also express too low an opinion of the person, work, and promises of the Redeemer, which is certainly wrong. Now, you say, Well, how does this work exactly? Temptations, accusations are basically lies, things that Satan leads you to think in certain ways and moves you to do what's wrong, one through overview too high view of yourself, too low view of yourself, too high view of God's holiness, uh, too low a view of God's holiness and too high view of his love, too low a view of his love and too high view of his holiness. How do those lies work? If you get a book by Thomas Brooks, also a 17th century Puritan, a peer of, you know, contemporary of Richard Baxter, Thomas Brooks wrote a book called Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. I have chosen, he's got 50 or 60 or 70, but what I've done is I've chosen just a few from the temptation category and just a few from the accusation category, just to give you the sense of how this works. So for example, he says, how does Satan tempt us? Here's eight devices. Ready? Listen. I'll give you the device and then I'll sometimes give you the self-talk that you might be saying to yourself. The first device is he shows you the bait and hides the hook. Which means he gets you to look at the short-term pleasures of what this would do and hide from yourself the long-term misery of what will happen. Come on, you know that one. You don't know that one? Here's number two, by getting you to rationalize sin as virtue. I'm not really greedy, I'm just thrifty. I'm not really nosy, I'm just concerned. I'm not an alcoholic, I'm just sociable. Number three, by showing you the sins of, the, of Christian leaders. So you say to yourself, he did it too, nobody's really that pure. Number four, by overstressing the mercy of God. So what you say to yourself is, do it. God will forgive you. That's his job. Number five, by making them bitter over suffering. So what you say is, I've suffered. I deserve this. By the way, you want to know one of, the, one of the reasons that powerful, prominent men always are having these affairs? Because what they say to themselves is, nobody knows how hard I work and how many sacrifices I make, so I deserve this. That's temptation. See? Here's another one by showing Christians how many bad people seem to be having great lives. And so the self-talk goes like this, I might as well do it, playing by the rules doesn't pay off. And I'll just give you one more, this is only seven. The seventh one is by getting you to compare one part of your life to another. Look, I'm very good over here, I'm very good over here, I do all that, I do all that, it's okay that I do that. In fact, you want an extreme form of that? Mafia hitmen, I'm good to my mother, okay, I kill people. But I'm really, really good to my mother. That's not a joke, by the way. I mean, I knew you'd laugh. That's why I told you, but (laughs) it's not a joke. Well, what about accusation? Here's four from the, the accusation arsenal. How does Satan accuse us? By causing us to look more at our sin than at our Savior. By the way, you know all the parenting books will tell you that if you Give your child one compliment for every one criticism. If you give your child one criticism for every one compliment, the kid's going to grow up hating themselves. They're going to grow up hating themselves. You need to give four or five compliments for every criticism because the criticisms really lodge and the uh, compliments don't. Uh, And there's reasons for that because the biblical reasons for that is we know there's something wrong with us. And so you've got to have a lot more compliments than criticisms. In the same way, what Thomas Brooks says is, For every one look at your sin, you need to take five looks at your savior and the devil makes sure that doesn't happen. Number two, under accusation, by causing them, talking about Christians, to obsess over past sins that have done damage that can't be undone. Number three, by making Christians think that the troubles they're going through must be punishments. So you say, this wouldn't have happened unless God was mad at me. Number four, by making people think that the inner struggles and feelings they have Christians couldn't possibly have. So you say, if I were a real Christian, I wouldn't be having these thoughts and desires. Do you recognize any of these? He's playing you. He knows what strings you've got, and he's vibrating them. You must not be unaware of his schemes. You must understand what he's out there doing. That's what we're fighting the schemes of the devil. Now, number three, how do we fight? Yeah, you said, boy, you haven't left much time. No, I haven't. And it's partly because of the little bit of artificiality. We've broken the part of the text on spiritual warfare into two sections. This section basically gives you the problem. And next week, the full armor of God, what that is, brings you the solution. But I can tell you two things, and it's the good thing about the fact that I have to, I don't have that much time, and it, most of this is next week, is it forces me to be concise right here. And that's helpful to everybody. Here, I'd like to tell you two things you must do if you are going to fight successfully. All of these things that are being thrown at you. The one is, know what particular devices Satan uses on you. I will never forget the first time I read Thomas Brooks' Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices. And he's got all of these Devices and basically, they're forms of self talk, little things that you say to yourself in your heart on your way into doing something wrong. And I'll never forget how surprised I was that I remember three of them were things that I used to say to myself, always say to myself, and they always led to disaster. And I just finally got rid of them. I said, I never say that to myself anymore. When I start to think that, I said, That's a dead end, forget that. You know, disaster will happen now. So I'd no longer go there, and I realized that that basically Satan had stopped trying those out because I'd gotten wise to them, and I found three more. So he's not stupid. He moves around, you know? He says, okay, okay, they got wise to me on that. Those three, fine. I won't go there anymore. These are the three. I said, oh, no. Do you know which ones he's using on you? Do you know which yours are? See, he knows what your strings are. Do you know what your strings are? Do you know where you give him openings? That's principle one. Principle two, the gospel is the armor. And do you know why? Come on, let's do some theology here. What are the two things that he does? Temptation and accusation. He either gives you an overblown sense of God's holiness and minimizes his love so you hate yourself. Or he gives you an overblown sense of God's love and and plays down the holiness so you go do things you shouldn't do and think everything's going to be okay and it's a disaster. He turns you into someone who either is crushed by a sense of your guilt or (laughs) doesn't have enough sense of a guilt at all. Now, if you believe you're saved by living a good life, if you believe what all the other religions say, and that is basically, we'll find God, I will... Self actualize, I will be saved if I do these things and I do these things. Now, if you really believe that through your efforts and through your achievements and through your performance, you can save yourself, then you are either sometimes feel like a sinner oh, I've failed or you sometimes feel loved and accepted because you feel like you succeeded. Either you feel like a sinner or you feel loved and accepted. But if you believe the gospel that Jesus Christ died for you on the cross as your substitute that he took the penalty for your sins so that when you believe in him, all of your guilt is put on him and absorbed there, and all of his righteousness and and all of his record is brought to you so you're loved and accepted in him, then that means every Christian walks around with those two facts in their mind at the same time. I am a sinner. In myself, I'm lost, and my sin was so great, nothing less than the death of the Son of God could save me. Sin was so bad, my sin was so bad, God had to do that. Jesus had to do that. On the other hand, I'm absolutely loved. I'm completely accepted. I'm as loved now as I will be four billion years from now. He sees me in Jesus Christ. Now, do you know what that is? One of those facts completely demolishes temptation. If you understand the gospel, you know the thing you're tempted to do, Jesus Christ died so you wouldn't do that. Jesus Christ was ripped from limb to limb because of this. How can you have anything to do with it? But on the other hand, when you're being accused, the other fact completely demolishes that strategy of Satan because you are absolutely loved and accepted. It's the gospel. You put on the gospel, and it completely defeats the strategies of Satan. Let me just give you one example of the kind of talk that you have to, what it means to put on the gospel if you're accused if you're feeling too guilty, if you're feeling like I'll never be what I should be, if you're feeling like a failure, if you're feeling you know, that, you are, uh, that God can't love you, other people can't love you, if you're down on yourself, this is what Thomas Brooks said. I'll close with this. Thomas Brooks, who was a wonderful, wonderful pastor, said this to people who were under accusation. He said, the remedy against this is to look upon all your sins as charged to the account of Christ. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him, and with his stripes we are healed. You know the wife who said to the bill collector, if I owe you anything, go to my husband. So may the believer say to justice or to the devil, if I owe you anything, go to my Christ, who has underwritten me fully. I must not sit down discouraged. This is still Brooks talking. Under the fear of those debts which Christ to the uttermost farthing has fully satisfied, the remedy against this accusation is to solemnly consider that believers must repent for their being discouraged by their sins. Believers must repent for being discouraged by their sins. It springs from the refusal of the richness, freeness, fullness, and everlastingness of God's love. And from the refusal of the power, glory, sufficiency, and efficacy of the death and sufferings of the Lord Jesus Christ. And from the refusal of the worth, glory, fullness, largeness, and completeness of the righteousness of Christ given to you by faith. God did not give a believer a new heart for it to be rent and torn in pieces by discouragement. What is that? That's putting on the armor. And now stand. Do you know how to put on the armor? Do you know how to handle the things that are being thrown at you? We wrestle not only with flesh and blood, but with the gospel, we can stand. Let us pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us everything we need to uh, fight the fights that are in front of us. Lord, we know it's not just the devil. There's evil in us. That's the flesh. There's evil outside of us. That's the world. There's evil above us. That's the devil. We know things are complex. We can never blame everything on the devil. Oh, my goodness, no. But we recognize the multidimensionality of sin. We recognize the spiritual dimension of it. We will not make the same mistake that our whole civilization has made for the last century of underestimating power of evil and seeing that we wrestle not only with flesh and blood, but in Jesus Christ, you disarmed the principalities and power when you died on the cross. As the book of Revelation said that when you accuse us, we triumph over the accuser with the blood of the lamb. We pray, Lord, that you would teach us how to do that. Everybody in this room needs to find the ways in which devices are being used against them and to use the gospel in the peculiar, particular ways they need to. Give him that wisdom, for we ask it through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.
0: This concludes today's series of Unity in Christ. Thank you for listening, and I look forward to being with you again next week.